Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Welcome here, especially to those of you who may be joining us just visiting for the first time. My name is Josiah, I'm one of the pastors here, and a warm welcome to you all. I'm sure you can tell there's a bit of a theme going on in the service today. We're going to talk about resurrection a bit. In fact, a week ago this morning, I was talking to a couple from our church, and in the midst of the conversation, the husband, he asked me, are you going to be preaching on Easter Sunday? And I said, yes, I am. And I quickly responded sarcastically, you know, I might think, I'm thinking about talking about resurrection. You know? <laughs> and, and he responded without missing a beat. He said, well, that's good, because we can always find a different pastor. <laughs> so that message received, message received. So for fear for my job, and uh, more seriously though, because the tomb was empty, let's talk about resurrection this morning. And to do that, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to probably the chief passage on the subject, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For those of you who are unfamiliar, this is in the New Testament, and 1 Corinthians is really just a letter written by a man named Paul to a bunch of Christians who lived in the city of Corinth at the time. And he's writing to address a number of questions they have, a number of troubles that they're experiencing. And then in this passage specifically, he's going to talk about the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when you find your way there, I'm going to ask that you scan down to its final verse, to verse 58. And we're going to start at the end today because of how the end starts. The end starts, that last verse, it begins with a single word, therefore. Bible study methods 101, whenever you see the word therefore, you always ask the question, what's it there for? What is the therefore, therefore? Because obviously it points back. It is sitting on top of a cumulative argument or teaching that Paul is now going to say, because of all of this, Therefore, we must. Therefore, we should. And he's going forward from there. And so we see that in this text. Here, Paul is concluding what he's been teaching in this chapter. He's really about to answer the question, so what? Right? So what? All of this, so what? And what does he say? Well, let's read it. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I know what, what Paul is calling for here. These two things are two things that each and every one of us who follow Jesus want and need. We need and want those two things. We all need and want to be steadfast. All of us do. We want to stand with conviction in these relativistic and evil days. I want to know what I believe, and nothing is going to move me from that spot. That's what we want. We want to grow in that conviction, that steadfastness. We all also need and want to be working faithfully for the Lord, knowing that our effort is pleasing to him who saved us and keeps us saved. I want to contribute in a way that is helpful, is meaningful, has eternal significance. That's what I want, and that's what we all want and need. 
As followers of Jesus, each of us desires, or at least should desire, to be devoted and hope-filled laborers for the Lord. I want to work for him, and I want to stand strong on what he's taught. The question becomes, how? How do we do that? How do I increasingly stand strong in my faith and encourage others to stand strong in their faith? How do I increasingly serve the Lord with zeal and joy, confident that he sees and blesses what I do? How how do I do that? How can I become more rooted and stand with more conviction? Well, our, our answer comes before the therefore of this passage. That's what he's building toward. And really it comes down to a single word, according to Paul. It's because of the resurrection. It's because the tomb was empty. It's because he rose from the dead that we can stand strong. It's because he rose from the dead that we can serve him with joy and commitment. So now that we've seen where we're headed, let's go back now to the beginning of the chapter. Let's go back to the beginning. And as you go back, now you're saying, okay, there's 58 verses in this chapter. You're starting to check your watches. I can see you. I see you there checking your watches. It's a long text. I'm not going to hit on every text here. What I want to do is I want to show you in sections how Paul builds toward that final therefore, that so what. How can I stand strong? How can I serve him with joy? And he's going to build this case. And really what we're going to see is three facets of resurrection that he's going to lay before us this morning. First, he's going to show us evidence of resurrection. Then necessity of resurrection. And then finally, the nature of the resurrection. So in other words, he's going to answer three questions. How do we know it happened? How do we know it happened? That's a pretty important question. Why did it have to happen? And then what's it going to be like when it does happen for us? So that's what he's building toward. And and we'll see that this evidence and necessity and nature of the resurrection, it fuels our steadfastness and our hopeful labor in the Lord. I heard a story one time about a five-year-old and his father who were driving in the car, and they drove past a cemetery. And the child looks over, and there's this pile of dirt next to a freshly dug grave. And he says, Dad, look, one escaped. And today, we are saying, yes, one did escape. Not in that cemetery, but one did escape. And because of that, we have hope and can stand firm. And that's what Paul is building toward in this entire chapter. Now, Paul begins with the evidence of resurrection. Look at verses 3 and 4. These will be familiar to many of us who have grown up in the church and spent enough time around these parts. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ did not come out of nowhere, Paul is saying. It did not come out of nowhere. It happened, what did he say? According to the scriptures. It was predicted. Like in the 1930s when Babe Ruth called his shot and said, that's where I'm putting the ball, this home run. God called his shot. He said, I am sending a Messiah. He's going to die and he's going to rise again. The scriptures attest to it and say, this is what's going to happen. Paul says, according to the scriptures, it all happened as planned. I'm going to look back just for a moment to illustrate this because we can go a number of different places in the Old Testament to show that this was predicted. But I actually just want to go back in the New Testament a little ways to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, this is right after the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord. And then he ascended to the Father. And he left the disciples holding the bag. He says, get to work. Go do my mission. And Peter, he goes to Jerusalem and all the, the Jews are gathered for this feast. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preaches one of the most powerful sermons ever preached, Paul does. 
And this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And notice how he roots this in the Old Testament. This was called, this, God called this shot. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. In other words, you know this guy. You've seen him. He's been the talk of the town forever. You know who I'm talking about. This man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's a sermon strategy right there, right? Insult everyone. That's what we all want to do as preachers, right? But Paul, he's got a captive audience and he twists the knife. He says, you nailed him to a cross. You killed him. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Because he was innocent. And death goes to those who are guilty. And here's where he goes to the Old Testament. Verse 25, for David says of him, and he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That word is the Anointed One, the Messiah. And the question becomes, was David talking about himself? Right? He was the Anointed One. He was anointed as king over Israel. That's what they assume. He's talking about himself. You will not allow your Holy One to go to Hades or his body to see decay. But then in verse 29, Peter says this. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you that regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, let's go dig him up. Let's go see if there was decay that came to his body. You want to bet? I'll tell you right now, it is rotten in there. So the other words, David can't be talking about himself. That's where he goes next. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, speaking of David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. One example where the apostles, they looked back into the Old Testament and said, just according to the scriptures. God called his shot, 100%. Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures. There is evidence of resurrection in the Old Testament. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened. Now, we're talking about the evidence of resurrection. And he's writing to Corinth. They're not all Jews in Corinth. Not everyone receiving this letter grew up with the Hebrew scriptures steeped in them, knowing those Old Testament scriptures. What about the Gentiles who've come to faith and they want evidence of the resurrection? Is there any evidence for them? Well, there is, starting in verse 5, back in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul continues, And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, you don't believe the scriptures? Go ask some people. Go ask some people. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who witnessed, who saw, who touched, who dined with, who hugged, who learned from this resurrected Christ. Go ask them. Some have fallen asleep. Some have died. But there are many around when Paul wrote this. Go and check with them if you don't believe me. If you don't believe the scriptures, check with these people. 
And before we start saying, well, they were in on this together, there's this big conspiracy, right? They just agreed among themselves, hundreds of people, agreed with themselves that we're gonna plan this ruse. Well, let's remember what they had to gain from sticking to this story. They lost their income. Many of them lost their families, their status, their reputation, and many of them lost their lives. How long does conspiracy theory hold together when there's hundreds of people who are under the threat of death? Very, very little. In fact, 0% of the time. That will not happen. And Paul's saying, you want to know that there's evidence of resurrection? Go ask people. There's witnesses all over the place. See, Christ's resurrection was both expected by the Old Testament and attested to by hundreds of witnesses. There is evidence of resurrection. Paul begins this conversation, this discussion, this teaching on resurrection by saying, it happened. It definitely happened. And it's the same for us today, brothers and sisters. It's the same for us today. There is much evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Much, much, much evidence for it. Now, not enough to convince someone with a hard heart. I guarantee you that. But enough that it can give you and I full confidence in its reality. Let's be very clear about something. People don't reject Christ because of a lack of evidence. That's not why people say no to Christ. That's not why they say no to believing in Jesus and his claims and his messiahship because of a lack of evidence. And this, this goes for us, too, who once were in this place. No, people reject Christ because we're sinners and we would rather worship ourselves than the creator God. That's why, ultimately. That's why we reject Christ. It's not for a lack of evidence. And again, I remind us that us as believers, that would be us as well, if not by God's grace. There is evidence pointing to that which Paul calls of first importance, that Christ came back to life. Now, Paul quickly moves on in this chapter from the how do we know it happened to why did it have to happen? This is so important. Now, why did this have to happen? From the evidence of resurrection to the necessity of resurrection. Verse 14. And if, sorry, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. So apparently in Corinth, there were some who were struggling with this idea of resurrection. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps they had bought into that Greek idea of body bad, spiritual good. It was very common in the first century. That this is all evil and fallen, but the spiritual is good. And so when we die, it's almost like a liberation from the body. Get out of this prison. And resurrection kind of seems like a step backward. Kind of seems like a regression. Like I'm going back into that dirty, rotten body. No, no, they couldn't get their heads around this. Now, for whatever reason, whatever they were struggling with, Paul makes it very clear in those verses that if the dead don't rise, just in general, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, says very candidly, what are we doing? What are we doing? If Christ did not come up out of the grave, what are we doing? If that tomb is not empty, then our faith is. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is all what it comes down to. The resurrection of Christ is a necessity. It is central to Christianity. It is of first importance. One author says it this way. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. You know, if one guy comes along and says, I'm going to die soon, I'm going to come back to life, and then he does... I mean, I'm going to listen to what that guy has to say. You know, he, he's earned that trust, that authority. The author goes on. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he had to say? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching. 
but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is the issue. And maybe you're here today and you don't know a whole lot about Christianity, what differentiates it from other world religions. I'll tell you right now, this is it. That we serve a living Savior. That the head of our religion is alive right now. That is the difference right here. It is of first importance. Paul continues in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Ugh. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, our sins are not paid for. We are still in our transgressions. Our loved ones who died believing this nonsense are just gone. They're just gone, he says. And we are living deluded, deceived lives, clinging to what Marx disparagingly called the opiate of the masses. Just keeping everyone docile until we become worm food. That's kind of what it is. We are most to be pitied. It is pathetic, Paul says, what it is. It's pathetic. When I was pastoring out west, I was pastoring with a, another elder who, during my time, was just a godly, godly man. In a very short amount of time, he contracted, he was diagnosed with cancer and died very quickly. And I remember I did the funeral, and then we left the church, and we went out to the graveside. And as we were saying a few words and about to lower the casket into the earth, this is a Filipino family, and apparently it is practice there to just before the casket was down to the earth to open it up one last time. And the widow lost it, threw herself at the casket, trying to embrace her husband one last time, and her family pulling her back, trying to hold her back, and she's wailing, wailing, trying to get at him one last time. If Christ has not been raised, that is nonsense. It is a waste of time. It is theatrics. I looked it up this morning that this year, two, or sorry, last year, 2021, in Canada, 307,132 deaths in Canada this past year from cancer, diseases, auto accidents, suicide, you name it. All of that was for nothing if Christ did not raise from the dead. Nonsense. We are most to be pitied, Paul says. Oh, but then we come to verse 20, and finally this hypothetical is over. He's been playing this thought experiment, right? What if Christ didn't raise from the dead? What if this is all a hoax? Here's what that looks like, and it is a dark hypothetical, as we've seen. But mercifully, verse 20, he comes to the end of that, and he, then he turns to the reality of it in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because Jesus came back to life, we get to come back to life. It was Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? See, because Jesus walked out of that grave, we too will spring out of ours. That is the good news of the gospel. He was the first fruits 
meaning that he was a model and a predictor of the crop to come who are comprised of all who fall asleep in Christ. If you've ever spent time in a farming community, you know what first fruits are. They grow their crop, and they might go out and test a little bit at the beginning of the harvest season. What's it going to be like? Is it a good year? Is it a sad year? Is it a bumper crop? That first fruits predicts and shows what is to come. I mean, if the coming crop is predicted by Jesus as the first fruits, oh, it is the bumper crop to end all bumper crops. It is the best thing ever. He is the first fruits. So we say here, we come to the end. So why is this resurrection necessary? We've seen the evidence. Why is it necessary? Well, just a sample of reasons here. It frees us from the penalty of sin. It grants us eternal life. It comforts us with the knowledge of the future of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And it confirms that our faith is not in vain. Indeed, you and I are not most to be pitied. We are most to be envied. We are most to be envied. Why? Because up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He rose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Brothers and sisters, because Christ rose, we too will rise. Some of us mistakenly think, or the world mistakenly thinks, that the afterlife is just floating, ethereal, disembodied, clouds, harps, all that kind of stuff. That that is the afterlife. And certainly those who fall asleep now are in the presence of the Lord in some mysterious manner. But as believers, we believe not only in life after death, we believe in life after life after death. That we go to be with the Lord, yes, but we await resurrection. That we will walk on a new heavens and new earth embodied. We will hug our loved ones who died in the Lord. We will rejoice. We will eat. We will play. This is our hope. Because he rose, we too will rise. Because he rose, we will one day embrace our loved ones who died in Christ. Because he rose, we can have confidence in this life, living in the freedom that forgiveness of sins provides. The liberation. If you've never read The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, old Puritan, wonderful allegory of the Christian life. The beginning of the story, this pilgrim, this wanderer, is just heavy laden with this backpack of guilt. He wants to get rid of this guilt, and he, and he finally comes to the cross, and it flies off into the empty tomb. Our sins are forgiven if Christ has risen from the dead, and since he has, that backpack is gone. We live with a spring in our step because we are forgiven. Because he rose, we are unified as God's people. You know, we can debate, well, we debate everything. We can debate spiritual gifts. We can argue church mission. We can disagree over carpet color, for crying out loud. We will fight over everything, right, as as Christians. We will. But that's what families do. We fight. We disagree. But one thing that unites us, unites our faith, our hope, our worship, our joy, is that our Savior conquered death. That is what unites us. That is what unites us. We deserve no pity. Our faith is full. Our hope is strong. Our sins have been paid for. Our eternity is sure. All this and more provided for us by Christ's resurrection. We had needs. We had many needs. And they were met in the empty empty tomb. So here, Paul has provided evidence of resurrection and a peek at the necessity of resurrection. We've seen that so far. But all this talk of coming back from the dead, it prompts some questions, doesn't it? Like, what's it going to be like? That's a pretty natural question. It's a question I have. You're talking about coming back from the dead. What's it going to be like? And so Paul here, he shifts now to a brief discussion on the nature of resurrection. It happened, 
Here's why it had to happen. Now, what's it going to look like when it happens to us? Drop down to verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So again, in Corinth, apparently some were confused and they were struggling with this idea that, that God could put back together again a body for resurrection. That God could and would gather the same material and reconstruct what was. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. That is hard to understand. Imagine a believer dies at sea and they dump them over into the ocean. Fish comes along, eats that believer. <sighs> Decades later, a fisherman's out, finds his fish, catches it, reels it in, cooks it, eats it. Decades later, that fisherman dies, buried in a field. Centuries later, that field becomes farmland. Wheat is planted. Wheat grows, it's harvested, it's turned into communion emblems, which we enjoy. Cannibals, all of you, a bunch of cannibals. <laughs> okay, imagine that. Now imagine the resurrection that that original believer on the boat that died is coming back up out of the grave. How? How is that possible? And that is what the, the believers in Corinth are saying. I don't understand that. And I got to admit, I, I don't fully comprehend how that happens. But look at Paul's response in verse 36. You fool. Ouch. I, I just got rebuked for my question there. You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, you can't have resurrection without death first. You can't come back to life unless you leave life. Verse 37. And that which you sow you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So in other words, the body that God resurrects will not be the same as the one that died, even though identifiable as that same person. Think of Jesus, again, as our first fruits. He was raised different. Don't hold on to me, woman. I have not yet ascended. Something is different. He passes through walls. I don't know if we're going to do that. Whatever. It was different than the body that went into the tomb. And yet they all knew him. They recognized him. They saw who he was. So it's different, but the same. And Paul, in this text, he uses grain seed to illustrate. Just as a seed and the eventual grain it produces are different, so our bodies before and after the resurrection are different. The first is planted, dies, and produces something much better and much more useful. And in both cases, the seed and the resurrection body, it's God who causes the growth. God who causes the transformation. Verse 39, he points to nature. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man and another of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. All he's saying is look around. There's all sorts of different types of flesh and there's all sorts of different levels of glory. Why is it so hard to understand that in the resurrection it would be a different kind of flesh and a different level of glory? We have evidence all around us, he's saying. Continues, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. I love this. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is what Christ's resurrection, the first fruits, predicted and secured for us. Our resurrections in which, like a seed going into the ground and sprouting wheat, our bodies will be changed from weak 
frail, small, failing kernels into powerful, rust-proof, beautiful, and perfect stalks. That will happen for each of us who die in Christ. From brokenness to gloriousness, from mortal to immortal. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And then Paul closes this section with some of the most exciting and hope-filled words in all of the New Testament, if you ask me. Starting in verse 50, I'll let Paul speak for himself. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This, this tent is not fit for eternity. It's gotta be upgraded. It's gotta be upgraded. Behold, verse 52, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. There is a generation where the Lord will come and that generation will not die. They will go to be with the Lord immediately. So we're not all gonna sleep, but we all will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a glimpse into the nature of the resurrection. What's it gonna be like? And if you're like me, that doesn't scratch every itch for me. I have a lot of questions. You know, is there a menu I can order from? Like, what's that body gonna be like? I wouldn't mind a few extra inches of height, you know, if I had my druthers. Like, what do I get to order? What age am I gonna be? You know, what is that going to happen? What, what is this going to be like? I have so many questions. Do I need a treadmill in glory to eat off all those glorified snacks? I don't know. There are so many things we don't know. Many of our questions are not answered, but we do know some things, important, important things that Paul points out here, that the nature of the resurrection is one of imperishability, power, perfection, glory, heavenly, and fit to inherit eternity, an existence where death has been put to death, finally, swallowed up finally and totally. And all this will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And now we arrive back where we began. We've circled all the way back to the implication of the resurrection in verse 58. Now we've seen what the therefore is there for. What was it there for? Therefore, because of all of this, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How can we stand strong as pressure mounts around us as the world comes for the minds of our children, our grandchildren, looking to indoctrinate them into, let's call it what it is, wickedness? How do we stand strong? How can we endure doubts and pain and trials and sickness and loneliness and disappointment with our trust intact? How do we do that? How can I prepare to be immovable in conviction while gracious in action. When you figure that out, tell me. I'd love to know that one. How do I juggle those two things? 
And like you, I don't want to just survive the onslaught of this world. That's not good enough for me. I don't want that. I want to thrive in my work for the Lord. I don't want to just plant my feet and weather the storm. I want to make a difference for his name as he empowers me. And I know you do as well. So how do we do that? That brings a whole other set of questions. How can we pour ourselves out in service to our Savior when we feel unworthy? When we feel unable? When we feel pathetic? When we feel immature? How can I work for him when the enemy is whispering in my ear that I'm too sinful? You're too rough around the edges. You're too ill-equipped. I don't even know if you're saved. Whisper, whisper, whisper. How can I be confident when it seems like my contribution to the Lord's work is so minuscule? I see the servants out there, those poster childs for the Lord's kingdom. I see them. They're doing all sorts of the Jim Rennies of the world. I see them out there, right, doing all this work. I want to be like him. I don't really contribute a whole lot in comparison. Is it even worth it? Is it even noticed? Does it make, if I disappeared, what difference would it really make? Do I contribute, or is this just all in vain, my efforts? How can I serve him with all I have and all I am, with joy in my heart and thanksgiving in my bones? The answer to all of these questions, according to Paul, is the resurrection of Christ. That's how. That's how. Because it happened, because of the needs it met, and because of what it will be like when we raise from the dead. Because of what we look forward to. Because the imperishable is coming. Because the tomb was empty. That's how we can do it as children of God. It's only because of that which is of first importance. It's only because we serve a living Savior that we can stand strong and serve joyfully. That's, only, that's the only reason. That's the implication of the resurrection. That's what the therefore is therefore in verse 58. That's what the so what is of this beautiful chapter. When we stand in light of the resurrection of Christ, that we serve a living Savior, died for my sins, rose from the dead, first fruits, I too will be raised. Then we start to understand how Paul could say, what can this world do to me? You kill me, send me to be with the Lord. You leave me alive, I'll keep serving him. You cannot touch me, world, as evil as you are. Why? Because my Savior came up from the grave, and I too will rise. Honestly, what can you do? What will you take away from me? My money, my reputation, my followers on social media. What are you going to take away from me that will not be given back to me a hundredfold? You cannot touch me, world. This is how, as believers, we stand strong and convicted in what he has said, because up from the grave he arose. That's how. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself today weary, just tired, look to the resurrection. It happened, it meets your greatest needs, and it guaranteed your own resurrection. If you find yourself today straying from the Lord's work or straying from his pleasure, maybe you're straying in your sinfulness, again, look to the resurrection. Hear this, he died for you and raised new life for you. You are in him. Come back to him in faithfulness. He is faithful to you. If today you find yourself insecure and frightened, lonely and vulnerable, weak or discouraged, look to the resurrection. There find the ability to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
a friend of mine, a number of years ago, he felt called to the mission field, and he decided to go to southern Asia to reach unreached people groups. And as with many missionaries, he and his wife would oftentimes send newsletters back to his supporters to keep us up to date with how things were going and so we could pray and support them more knowledgeably. More knowledgeably. In one of his newsletters that he sent, he was offering a bit of an explanation as to why they would go. Apparently some of his supporters, maybe family members, didn't fully understand that crazy decision to go over where there was no comfort, where there was no safety, where there was no conveniences, there's no familiarity like that which they left in North America. And so he offered an explanation in this one newsletter. And this is what he wrote. This is why he serves the way he serves. This is how he justified it. A man in ancient Rome was clinically dead for three days and then undid his own death. In the same way he undid his own death, he is returning to undo all death, including its symptoms, cancer, bullying, malice, depression, and natural disasters. His post-death world is available to those who trust in him to forgive their contributions to death and its symptoms. That's good news. And the world needs good news. Period. That's why we go. That's why we stand with conviction. Because he rose from the dead, that's why. Nothing can move us because we serve a living Savior. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.